Good morning. This is NPR News. I'm Chris Farrell, in for Angela Davis. Now, did you read the New Yorker article on pop star Britney Spears in her conservatorship nightmare? Maybe watch the New York Times documentary, Framing Britney Spears. Well, the pop star's troubled guardianship has highlighted the immense power court-ordered guardians wield over their charges and raised alarms about the potential for abuse. So thanks to her story, efforts are underway to tackle some long-standing problems with guardianships around the country. Guardianships are when the court assigns someone to manage the financial and health affairs for someone who has been determined to be incapacitated. The concern is how vulnerable people are when they can no longer manage their everyday affairs and end up in a conservatorship. A majority of people with guardians are older adults, but there are also many younger adults that have guardians. So to learn more about the system and how to improve it, I'm joined by two guests. Pamela Teaster is Professor of Human Development and Family Science at Virginia Tech. She's also Director of the Virginia Tech Center for Gerontology. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Merritt Peterson is Associate Director of the Minnesota Elder Justice Center. The Minnesota Elder Justice Center provides support, information, and resources to older and vulnerable adults and their loved ones around the issues of abuse, neglect, and financial exploitation. Glad you could join us. Thank you. Good morning. So to start off, let's just uh, deal with some of the basics, and I'll, I'll start off with you, Pamela. So what is conservatorship? Conservatorship is the management of a person's finances if, if he or she is unable to manage them herself. In a court, there would be input by some kind of professional to assess the ability of that person to make decisions, and then if ultimately a court would decide whether a person would need a surrogate decision maker in the guise of a guardian. I'm sorry, conservator. Right. And so just uh, for a a terminology clarification, um, I've read or seen people use conservatorship, people use guardianship. Are they interchangeable? Uh, Not not yes and no. Depends on the state. (laughs) Um, so, good answer, right, for an academic. Um, but, but guardian often is the person who takes, makes the personal decisions for an individual, and the conservator is, is the person we generally think of who makes the financial decisions. When I write about it, to, to put that in every sentence I ever write, I would never. So I usually make some kind of footnote and say I'm going to use guardianship as the default word. Okay, so we're going to use guardianship as our default word for the uh, I think you the, could, the yeah. purpose of this this conversation. And how is the determination made that somebody is incapacitated, and who makes this determination? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so um, it, it's a process. Um, a person would uh, make a petition that would come from anybody who cared, um, and then there would be. Uh, a guardian ad litem, that would be a person who is the eyes and ears of the court appointed by the judge to do an investigation. Um, and then probably through that that, pe- that uh, decision-making process, some kind of evaluator, often a psychologist or, uh, or, or other pr- trained professional, might make a psych assessment to see if that individual is able to comprehend what's going on. So it's a set of individuals and then a, he- a hearing. And then, Merritt, who are these guardians? I mean, who ends up being appointed? Family members? Uh, who, who, are, who are the guardians? Great question, too. Uh, you know, guardians can be family members, certainly. 
Um, and certainly can also be professionals. There are guardians uh, who um, are uh, serving in that capacity for more than one individual. And uh, there are guardians who uh, work for organizations that provide that service broadly to, to many individuals. So we have a range of individuals who are serving in these roles from folks who have opportunities to receive you know, kind of professional guidance and continuing education on that responsibility um, to the other end of the spectrum, family members who are stepping in to that role without a great deal of information about how to um, how to serve. Well, that's one of my questions. How much support goes to the guardians? I mean, even like I know people who are uh, been executor for an estate. I mean, obviously, that's a very different, uh, different role, but it turns out to be pretty complicated. And it's not like we grow up, you know, knowing how to be executor. I don't think we grow up knowing how to be a guardian. I would agree. And I think that some of the things that we know or expect guardians to do are things that we might presume would come naturally in a family context. And yet we know that family systems are different. And so uh, people approach caregiving in various ways and the the role of the guardian um, in, in various ways. And so some uniform resources are needed. There are some some of those things, you know, our judicial branch offers guides for guardians and conservators and resources um, to allow individuals who are uh, appointed into those roles um, to review, to uh, to make sure that they're approaching their responsibilities using best practices. But oftentimes we know uh, families need to uh, know where to find these kinds of materials and then seek them out in a recurring way. That often doesn't doesn't happen in the context of of um, um, meeting those uh, responsibilities as a guardian, the the extra time it might take to return to those educational resources. So I think some more uh, more resource or training for folks who who step into those roles would be tremendously helpful. And uh, Pam, I want to get back to this educational resources, but first I wanted to ask you, so how many people are in guardianship? <laughs> we don't know. Um <laughs> and that's one of the real issues and problems. We don't know. No state knows how many people are under guardians. They have. They may have records for that, um, but no state knows the actual number. Um, I think there is a, a move afoot um, by members of Congress to uh, try to rectify that problem. It's kind of remarkable that, considering Indeed. you know how much this gets to the core of what it is to be a, a human being in our society uh, and you know, the responsibilities that are going on here, that there isn't good data. You are you are absolutely and precisely right. One estimate of the National Center for State Courts is 1.3 million adults, um, but it's it's not really verified. So it's, um, it's better than nothing, but it's not as good as something. Well, before I go back and back and some more about this data, I want to go to um, the phone lines because we got a call from Leon from Iowa. Leon? Yes. And what is your question or comment? Good morning. So my father uh, was in guardianship for about a year and a half, and uh, I'm from Iowa, and it was he was put into guardianship because there were eight kids, and even though he had picked his POA, uh, which I was. Power of attorney. Medical, POA meaning power of attorney. Yes, for both medical and uh, financial. Um kids were able to take me to court and take it away from, even though I had done nothing wrong, absolutely nothing. 
I had never spent a dime of his money or abused him in any way, but they just didn't want me in charge of it. So the courts let a guardian and a conservator, they ended up being two different people, uh, take over. Now, he had done very, very well for himself through the years, and he was given an amount that he could spend per year. It was kind of use it or lose it, and it was $500,000 a year. Well, with that being said, he, he they, they went through his money. People were taking care of him that had never made $14 an hour in his and they were paying him hundreds of thousands of dollars. The guardian themselves would never see my father, and and they would take checks of twenty and thirty thousand dollars a month. And when I tried to get it back into the courts, um, because of the COVID and everything that was going on with it, it took such a long time. We went through a half a million dollars in a year's period. Well, it took it you know, a million dollars before we got it back to court and got them replaced, and we ended up with the same thing. And come to find out, these guardians and conservatives, a lot of them have just gone to, oh, I'll say a weekend class to to become these guardians and conservatorships. And I just want, and they they have immunity. They have immunity from the courts um, because they've been given this, this thing, unless it's very drastic, they've they've done something. But it, yep. now it's going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to take it and try to recover any money. And and the, and the lawyers are telling me, don't even bother. Okay. Well, what that's um, well. Thank you so much for calling in in with your with your observation with your story. And I'm sorry you're going through this, and and your family is going through this. Merit, without dealing with the the specifics, you know, obviously can't can't make cert, certain types of judgments. But what do you take away from you know that kind of story that that sort that yeah. experience? Well, a few things, Chris, I can hear in in Leon's story, and thank you for sharing that story, Leon. Um, one of the things that strikes me um, about Leon's story is just a, um, the frustration in in um, understanding the system and responses and the um, and the various entities involved. Um, we're talking about the individual, of course, at the center of the conversation, the person um, who uh, we consider to be potentially subject to guardianship. Then we're looking at family systems surrounding that individual, court systems, um, and then. Potentially, we're looking at uh, um, financial exploitation and, and questions about financial resources and, and financial fiduciary decision making. So, lots of different, lots, lots of pieces of information to keep track of in these instances of guardianship and conservatorship. This is really complicated for families um, to step into. So, I'm, I'm struck by that. And also in Leon's story, you can hear the costs of this system um, costs to families, costs both in money and in time. I feel that Leon's story is an illustration of that as well. Um, when we when when we pursue guardianship or conservatorship, and we agreed, uh, my apologies, I'm doing what Pam described <laughs> earlier, which is using all the language all the time. So we agreed to say guardianships today. When we when we pursue guardianship, uh, these court processes um, do often involve a, a fair amount of uh, time and financial resource. And so I hear that in Leon's story as well. And just the third observation I'll make is that uh, Leon refers 
referred to uh, the the impact of our pandemic uh, changes on uh, his family's experience within the guardianship guardianship system, um, and that's something I think uh, might be interesting to explore as well. We've had some interesting learning, particularly about social connections and the importance of social connection and the challenge of isolation over the last, um, you know. 16 months mm. or so. Uh, and that's been interesting and informed, I think, our discourse around uh, guardianship and support. And Pamela, again, we can't judge the specifics, but what do you, you know, take away from Leon's story? First, first, I'm very sorry about how all that has happened. Um, I think it it, it goes to uh, individuals' confusion about, as, as Marit said, individuals' confusion about how the system works and uh, needing explanations about why those decisions were made. And I don't know the specifics of that, but um, sometimes, you know, we hope that most of the time decisions by courts and individuals are good, and sometimes they're not. And so I, without knowing the specifics, guardianship is a very confusing thing. I could be very, I'd be very honest to you. Um, and even I help on individual cases, and I can ch- still tell you I, I'm left with a big question mark sometimes when I'm trying to review them. Mm. And why I, is it so confusing because um, the process is confusing, or is it so confusing because actually a lot of times you're dealing with some moral issues that are incredibly diff- difficult to make judgments about? <laughs> Both. But your answer is, is both. Um, you know, there's a lot of moving parts to guardianship, health care, psychology, uh, the courts, uh, families come into play, um, different kinds of decisional mechanisms that we have. And then, of course, it's full of, uh, it, it's riddled with uh, ethical questions and issues to balance. So uh, I'm going to direct this to both of you. I'll start with you, you Pamela. Um there was an AAP article I was looking at, and it uh, says, quote, you know, activists charged that in some cases, unscrupulous professional guardians have turned legally sanctioned exploitation into a cottage industry abetted by greedy attorneys and pliable judges. And then there's a report from the Government Accountability Office. I believe it was back in 2016 or so. And elder yeah. abuse, the extent of abuse by guardians is unknown, but some measures exist to protect older adults. And in that report, the GAO identified hundreds of allegations of abuse, neglect, exploitation between 1990, 2010. And it looked only closely at 20 of those cases. And what it found is that uh, in those 20 cases, guardians had stolen or otherwise obtained $5.4 million from 158 incapacitated victims. So how big a problem is this exploitation and abuse in the guardianship system? Pamela? You're going to be sorry to hear my next answer. But it's the same about the number. We don't know. Um, I've done studies, too, and, and I'm consulted for the GAO on what you just read. Um, and the problem is trying to find the source, the, find the right source to try to figure that out um, is an imperfect thing to do. Some of it rises to criminality. Some of it doesn't. Um, I, I've, been, I've been doing a study funded by the Retirement Research Foundation, and I, I know that while I use the source of Adult Protective Services, absolutely fabulous sets of people who I work with all the time to do all kinds of data collection. It was difficult trying to 
find what I think was the number of, of reports that they received about um, exploitation by guardians. Sometimes the systems just don't talk to each other as they should. And Marit? I would absolutely agree. I think the the need here is for for data points is tremendous. We we really have a difficult time crafting adequate or meaningful interventions when we don't have information about how these harms transpire. And so uh, that's something that we face in Minnesota specifically as well. And I would actually say that Minnesota with regard to data is in a, in a relatively good position compared to many of our, um, of our many other states. Um, Minnesota has had for some time um, an interesting um interesting uh, conservatorship account auditing program uh, that's situated within the judicial branch that actually does look at uh, at uh, accountings provided by, in the case of Minnesota language, this is in fact conservators, folks who are managing financial assets of individuals, um, and review those, um, bringing attention uh, to discrepancies, um, but the within the court system itself. But that's a unique that that's unique uh, in in has not been replicated in very many other states. So we have this tremendous need for data, both about um, what in fact is under management uh, by guardians uh, broadly, but then who they are and um, the nature of their relationships uh, with the persons that they are um, intending to um, be serving. So Pam, this is a good point to say. So what reforms would you like to see? I understand there are some proposals in the Free Brittany Act, um, which has been introduced in in Congress, I think the formal name is the Freedom and Right to Emancipate from Exploitation Act. <laughs> Which is more global in, in scope. Um, you know, you've hit the nail on the head as far as I'm concerned. You know, I'm a researcher. I believe one of the most powerful things we can have is the number that we have, that we have monitoring that's quantifiable and qualifiable. Um, and that we, but we have data because if we don't know who they are, we don't know if reports are filed. If we don't know who the guardians are, sometimes we might even not know that. Um, then I, I think we have a real problem. So we can't monitor the. If we don't monitor and we don't know the numbers of people, um, we have a real problem. So I believe the first key is, is information. And Marge, specifically here to Minnesota, what reforms do you think would be important to to, to see enacted? Absolutely. Well, we've, we have had some really meaningful change within our guardianship statute over the last couple of years. And so some of those changes are tremendously welcome to those of us who work in this area. Um, and I'm happy to point specifically at a definition for supported decision making that I think um, has has been welcomed into our law as we look at the ways that we respond to the needs of those around us who um, who have have some need for decisional support. Uh, this kind of change that really centers an individual um, and really focuses on how we might support an individual's ability to make decisions that are available to to them. Uh, that that kind of change is very welcome. So so. So I'm I'm grateful for that that uh, really that change which has occurred. Looking forward, I think when we actually uh, look at the guardianship conservatorship system, if we if we have people who are subject to guardianship, um, to make a, a pathway available for those individuals, the that's 
somewhat more clear than the path we currently have to go directly to the court that supervises that arrangement would be very meaningful. Um, so that's certainly some something that I would uh, would emphasize is the ability of individuals who are subject to guardianship uh, to communicate directly uh, to the court in a in a consistent way. Um, something that Pam has alluded to that that um, we've talked about uh, has been the interesting and um, sort of non-uniform way in which uh, guardianship is um, addressed l- locally uh, effectively based on on the jurisdiction of district court. So uh, some consistency, I think, would be tremendously helpful. And Pamela, you'd like to see that consistency. Oh my gosh, yes, absolutely. Not only uh, ethically and morally, but, but uh, if we're going to be able to track what guardianship does, which ought to improve the situation rather than make it worse, we have to have consistency to be able to do that. And what about the educational resources? I mean, are there, you know, are there improvements being made in the educational resources that are being offered to people, particularly family members who are going into a guardianship situation? Pamela? I'll speak to the I'll speak to that globally, and Mark can talk to that more with boots on the ground. I think all the time we are trying, I mean, I think the people who work and study guardianship are certainly aware of the deficits that we have about trying to teach people what they're getting themselves into often for life. I think the Internet and Zoom have made it even easier for people who have those abilities to connect, to have those resources, but there's just still so much that needs to be done, as I alluded to. Um, it's complex. And, and we need resources that people can access easily to be able to help them do the best job they can. And Mart, how about here in Minnesota? You know, I think that we have some, we do have some excellent resources. Again, if folks are able to seek those out um, and, and are aware of their availability. So I think one thing that we could do here in Minnesota is really uh, – um, help to connect folks with places where many of those resources are coming together. Uh, when a person steps into uh, a guardianship uh, um, role, uh, whether as the the person at the center of that guardianship, the person subject to guardianship, or whether as the guardian, um, there are are resources available for all. T- for exploring all kinds of questions. Um, how do I want to approach uh, my time during the day? Um, what kind of occupational opportunity is available for me? Uh, how do I want to put a, a healthcare team together? What do I, um, yeah, what decisions and, and um, considerations am I making? Well, there are resources available uh, to support um, the building of that network. And so I think, um, importantly, uh, there are some places folks can go to get specific information about how to build those teams, uh, whether, frankly, in the context of guardianship or outside of that context. And so I think, I, I, if I can, Chris, just yeah, draw please. attention to one of those resources. Yeah. We have in Minnesota uh, the Center for Excellence in Supported Decision-Making. Um, supported decision-making, again, is, is, is a recognition that uh, we want to allow individuals to to exercise the maximum amount of decisional ability that they can and uh, allow folks to maintain their right to make choices. Uh, and the Center for Excellence in Supported Decision-Making does work uh, to answer questions about guardianship and uh, to help folks understand what options might be available for them um, in terms of putting a team like that together. So connecting with the Center for Excellence in Supported Decision-Making is a great educational resource, in fact, um, for individuals who are, are looking at the guardianship system um, on a personal level. 
um, to think about uh, gathering that sometimes complicated or, or, or multifaceted team together. I'm Chris Farrell, and this is NPR News. So we're discussing what reforms are needed to improve the nation's guardianship system. And my guests are Pamela Teaster, Director of the Virginia Tech Center for Gerontology, and Marit Peterson, Associate Director of the Minnesota Elders Justice Center. And let's go right to the phone lines. And first, I want to go to Jeff from La Crosse. What is your comment, Jeff? Hello, I was uh, a guardian three times, twice for my oldest sister and once for my mother. My sister was first, and she was severe bipolar and then also a severe alcoholic as a result of that. And she kept getting into all kinds of trouble, and uh, a court commissioner in a small town north of La Crosse, our hometown of Onalaska, asked if I would do that. And I was, I own a business and I was pretty busy, but you know, it just had to be done. So I, I helped out with that. And then she withdrew voluntarily a while later because she just didn't like being controlled. But then again, she got into trouble. And so I started again for a while before she withdrew again. And then um, later it just didn't work out. And uh, then, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Sure. Uh, my father passed in '07, and my mother had been having some dementia problems up to that time, but it got much worse with his passing, and she was deemed to be uh, not in control of her faculties. So. They asked if I would do it, and that if I didn't want to do it, there was really nobody else who could. I have one other sister, but she wasn't capable of it. And so they said, you know, even though you may not like it, and there's no compensation, and also want to point out here in La Crosse, from my perspective, it seems to be fairly well controlled. I don't see really how there could be any kind of funny business with the guardian ad litem uh, along with uh, the annual report to the court and and doctors reviewing and, and everything. Um, but my dad had left her with some money and we went through almost about three, two thirds, three quarters of that in the first year. It was just an ugly mess. Ah, well, I'm sorry to hear that, but it sounds like you, I mean, you you definitely absorbed a lot of responsibility, but the system worked the way it's supposed to for you and your family members. Yes. I mean, as, as, as much as it could, um, there, you know, there, there, the staff that are available to help are definitely overworked and underpaid and doing the best they can. And so when I needed, I had no experience in how to do any of this kind of thing. And, and that's why we went through so much money. Uh, the, some of the people that I had help out with my mom that first year were totally unqualified. Just, <laughs> in fact, my mom had become an alcoholic also, and one of the caregivers was giving her alcohol. Okay. And yeah. was the one then that stirred up trouble with the rest of the family. She was also stealing from her. Mm. And it was just, 
And, and we had to pay her unbelievable amounts of money on top of that. It was. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry that happened to you. That's. Well, I wanted to turn to Pamela. And again, um, you know, listening to Jeff's story, you know, what do you draw out of Jeff's story? Well, first, um, Jeff, um, I just want to tell you that if you, you did, if you didn't know that already, you did the right thing, and it was not easy. But I think what you point out is something I try to point out too. While there are situations where their guardians exploit people, while there are not enough caregivers, you said a whole lot of things um, that are important that that contribute to the whole issue of guard of guardianship. Um, the system that you just talked about, the reports, the uh, reviews, um, when people do what they're supposed to do, um, it works pretty well. And I believe that's most of the time because there's a system in place for review and protection of individuals. The guardians are supposed to visit, for example, persons under guardianship at least once a month, if not more, at least um, every single person. So there are protections in place, and when they work, they work well. When they don't, that's where the problem is. Well, let's go to uh, Shalia. And I hope I got your name right, Shalia, in Hennepin County. Oh, hi. This hi. is Sheila. Sheila. I'm sorry. Uh, yes. Sheila. Um, what is your observation? Well, it's from experience. And the reason I called is because I was sadly laughing at how bright uh, conservatorship, the process, um, was portrayed. And it's not a bed of roses. And everybody that I have spoken to um, has also expressed um, great dismay and terror um, to what they went through. Um, In about 2008, I um, uh, could not handle the deceitfulness and what was going on financially, physically, emotionally, um, to my grandmother who had adopted me and my older sister when we were small children. And my mother has a mental illness and uh, also a great uh, desire for um, being taken care of financially. And I called Adult Protection in Hennepin County I had absolutely no help whatsoever. I had no help from Volunteers of America. I sought out to the point where I almost was going to lose my job trying to find help. And I hope things have changed, but I don't think they have. Um, It seems to be there is a story on every street corner in this country about elder abuse. And I was I spent over $57,000 trying to protect my grandmother, who, by the way, adopted me. Um, And uh, um, I got no satisfaction in the courts whatsoever. Um, And they wound up appointing a conservator um, from a company that um, was totally uncooperative. And I think it was primed because um, the mental illness problem with my mother. And um, financially, she had stolen hundreds of thousands, if not over millions of dollars. And nobody would do anything. The courts would not listen. And it was a nightmare. I've written a book. Oprah Winfrey is picking it up and is going to publish it. 
But I just want people to understand you're not alone in this, and it's extremely difficult, and I really doubt things have changed because I've run into people who have tried getting help, and it drains your bank account so fast you don't know what has hit you, and I have not met anybody who has been satisfied going through the courts. Well, thank you so much for calling in. Merit. Well, I'm responding to the challenges that Sheila experienced about what she was so candid. Thank you for sharing your experience, Sheila. These are, uh, as Sheila alludes to, not um, experiences that are not uh, unusual or um, unfamiliar to a lot of families. And one thing that I hear in Sheila's experience here has to do with the way um, we we respond to challenges within family systems um, and courts' abilities to uh, gather information and um, and respond appropriately. Um, something that I'm struck by has to do with our um, really what we what what we hope uh, a guardian will do um, when we think about balancing safety and autonomy, which is something that we talk about in certainly in this context. Mm-hmm. Um, when we seek a guardian for the purposes of the protection of an individual, uh, we really put a lot on the guardian um, that uh, may or may not actually be uh, appropriately situated there. Um, you know, in some sense, we, we know that the appointment of a legal guardian um, is it, in some ways a legal if not fiction, at least um, theoretical. We, we now have a person who at least is empowered to uh, assert what we might identify as a sort of final legal decision for someone. But what we often see is that uh, the person subject to guardianship, the person about whose decision-making uh, we express concern, um, may or may not choose to uh, uh, participate or cooperate uh, with the guardian's assertion of that authority. So, you know, there's there there emerge these very very complex dynamics within this context uh, that you know Pam and I both alluded to, Chris, in the beginning of the conversation with these right. complicated systems. And and Pamela, I mean, uh, the anger in Sheila's voice was you know was noticeable. Absolutely, she's never right to be. Um, the, there there are issues with the systems talking to each other. I hope it's better, Sheila. I'm not sure it is. Uh, but my wish is there There are a lot of people trying to make it better, uh, trying to, you know, the GAOs, trying to do some, you know, trying to help and understand that. Um, there's been a, a large summit that was just held. It's every 10 years to try to improve guardianship and practices and implementation. Um her, her her anger and annoyance is palpable and justified. Um, it, 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 and it boils down to system, multiple systems are involved in the issue um, and don't all talk to each other to be able to ameliorate them. And Pamela, do you I think... I study about protective services a lot, by the way. <laughs> also elder abuse. So do you think the, you know, the spotlight that has been put on Britney Spears, and obviously, you know, there's... You know, there's some huge differences there with the amount of money that's involved and, uh, you know, her stardom. But do you think that spotlight is going to put some pressure for greater reform? 
I am hopeful every time this happens. This is not the first time, it's, and, and it's not my first radio on the first time either. Really, um, the Associated Press did a series of articles back in 1988 that were all around the country of many things that Sheila just talked about in the, in the individual case. Mm. Well, let's go to let's go to Dale from Stillwater. Dale. Hi, um, I've been managing my mother's finances. She's 94 now for uh, probably 15 years after my father passed away. And um, we have managed to avoid the uh, legal guardianship uh, opportunity by really engaging with the family attorney to make sure that power of attorneys, health care directives, and the transparency to the family about mom's situation is available and and i just wanted to say that i i in, i intend to produce records that at any moment uh, a family member wants to challenge how my mother's money is being spent for her benefit they're welcome to do that and that it's terribly important that that the record keeping that goes along with that substantiates exactly what's going on because I'm in a position where I buy things for my mother, I get reimbursed. I have to be able to prove every single time that down to the penny, that money is going to benefit her and not me. And Dale, how have the conversations been with the, with your other family members? I mean, is it a pretty easy exchange at this point? Um, everybody pretty much takes it at face value, but I've extended it one more generation. So one of our daughter, uh, my daughter's, is actually uh, on, uh, we just redid power of attorneys for mom. So if I get hit by a bus, at least we're in a position where my daughter has everything she needs to be able to step in and maintain the continuity of mom's support. So, well, thanks so much for calling in, Dale. And Marit, what I, one of the things I want you to talk about is this power of attorney, which has been, been coming up. So power attorney and family communication in as people sort of try to you know think in advance while they're healthy you know what if i went into cognitive decline what if something happened to me later in life yeah. Oh, I just want to cheer Dale for having uh, both calling with that with that remark. And Chris, thanks for the question. It's such a, it, this is such a, a critical piece of this, and we have such opportunity here. So, power of attorney is a is a legal tool that gives one person the ability to make decisions, um, financial decisions, on behalf of of somebody else, uh, and. And we have power of attorney is one of a number of types of, of tools that we would call advanced directives. And we can make advanced directives for financial decision making, for health. So these are really, really critical tools that we can put into place um, as an alternative to, uh, as Dale's um, story illustrates, as an alternative to um, seeking guardianship or conservatorship under certain circumstances. These tools are so important. And so Chris's question is really about how do we, you know, engage within family systems in in a way that encourages this advanced planning. Certainly something we talk about a lot in the field. How do we connect with one another? Uh, I often think about uh, introducing the subject you know, at times when when families are all together. But over the last year, we've seen um, that 
these conversations can take place under other circumstances as well as we've had to find new ways to come together and connect. And it's just really about uh, proactively introducing the subject, which I know is easier said than done. Nonetheless, one way to start might be any number of the of kind of, of the resources available to kind of explore these tools like Power of Attorney. Um, there are some really excellent resources available from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau called Managing Someone Else's Money that talk about um, what it means to step into a role of a, of a financial decision maker. Um, those are uh, among some of the resources that a person might check out um, to look at what it means to either um, request that someone serve as your attorney, in fact, under a power of attorney, or that you that you serve as somebody else's power of attorney. Um, the the cool thing about uh, about these tools is that. Um, when we think about making power of attorney, you know, sometimes we think about uh, power of attorney and healthcare directive being created as part of somebody's estate plan, um, something that they might see guidance from private attorney around. And that is an excellent approach to take. But if a person needs to create a power of attorney or a healthcare directive, there are a lot of resources available at no cost that can help guide folks um, in decision making around um, nominating a, a financial uh, decision maker or a healthcare decision maker, so some um, some uh, reasonable uh, resources there. And Pamela, so you know, what are some thoughtful ways that people can you know uh, anticipate the unexpected or the undesirable? But we're all you know dealing with the uncertainty in terms of you know thinking through. I mean. Who do I want to have power attorney? And, you know, how do I set up um, these sort of family, uh, what it like to be a, like a family system that hopefully people honor my wishes? It's a great, it's, it's a great question. And, um, of course, I have a few answers of that. Um, I, I think I first want to frame it. I, I'm so glad that Dale was a good example of how it all went well and, and how proactive they are. Um as a gerontologist, we we just know that we are not going to live forever. The whole big question is how long is how is that going to go? Um, and so, while med- medical advances have done a lot of things, they have complicated end of life, for example. But we all owe making making our lives um, some more seamless way um, that per- that persons come after us can make decisions if we need it. So, planning ahead is the thing, and thinking ahead is the thing. I think that Mara said, um, we need to talk about it to somebody. You need to say to somebody, to your child, I don't want to live like that. That's key and important. If you wrote it down, that would be even better. We have things like values histories. I've done studies of that, and that is in law here in Virginia for the public guardians, that we try to understand what people want for the, for the, for their lives and the end of their lives. But those discussions are important. Theoretically, executing a power of attorney, a durable power of attorney, would theoretically, in most instances, mean no guardianship would ever be necessary. And with your long experience, so how do you start this conversation? I mean, you know, it's Thanksgiving dinner or it's uh, some some holiday gathering, and you know, in the, in in the middle of the toast, you say, "Now I want to talk about power of attorney." Um. I think that's very individualistic, um, but I, I can tell you uh, my son is a recent graduate of college in May, um, and we have already had those conversations because he is a nurse, and, and, and we took a walk, and I, I said, uh, you know, here you are at a plateau in your life. 
and I want you to know a little bit about you're going to, you will probably be the primary if something happens to me. And I think that if I get hit by a bus is a dour, but it's possible. So I think if you can have those conversations, I don't think Thanksgiving is my big, my big event to, to have that discussion, but I think you'll, I think that's individualistic for family members. Anyway, I had my discussion with my son again this spring because I know he knows about healthcare systems, and I want him to know how to intervene. Well, I like that going for a walk. I think that's that's really nice. Well, let's go to Carrie in Minneapolis. Carrie, hi. Um, say, I have a number of things to say, but I'll try to keep it short. Yeah, we're um, we're we're running toward the end of our of of the hour, so. Yes, please. I feel really frustrated with this conversation because I feel like it's really sugar-coated. Um, with, I'm with Sheila. I'm an advocate across the country for people who have wrongfully been placed in guardianship. And the guests that you have make it sound so benign. Yet, really, hmm. what I would say is that you need to follow the money. People on the street who are homeless are not taken into guardianship. The person who called from Iowa who father they fought for what he failed to mention was that the the guardian or i mean his all the the fight in the court was paid for through his estate except for his son had to fund the fight himself and really it comes down to follow the money um there are there are judiciary firms in minneapolis area that are go-to firms why is it that a large judiciary firm is the one that's always named conservator over people with large amounts of money. Um, There's just so many questions, and this conversation makes it sound so vanilla. Uh, The woman who was talking about the uh, power of attorney, she failed to mention that without a durable power of attorney or durable power of health care, your documents won't mean anything. And in a court, a probate judge often throws them out. So okay. There's so many things that you should have a follow-up com- uh, topic on this. Have a, another show right. with other types of guests on here who have a different perspective. All right. Um, Pamela, I want to get, let you respond because you did use durable power of attorney, but I do. Uh, I want to go first to you to respond. Um, Carrie, uh, uh, I, I don't disagree with you that it... I, I think the data would be interesting to see who gets appointed power of attorney or, or who gets appointed guardianship, and I've advocated for that. Um, I'm very aware there's exploitation by guardians. I can only tell you what my data say, but I can also say that executing a durable power of attorney is, your, as you probably pointed out, is the best remedy for that. I don't mean to sugarcoat guardianship. I don't have enough data to tell you how much exploitation goes on. I've tried in multiple ways, um, but I, I would agree with you that it does. I don't mean to sugarcoat it, but I I believe it's like elder abuse. Um, There's a percentage of that that goes on in the world. Um, We we have some estimates of prevalence. They are imperfect because that estimate is people who have capacity. Um, So there are a lot of things that a lot of things we don't know about that. But I also believe there are there are a lot of people who like um, maybe the man Dale um, do a good job as guardians. And Marit, the the idea of follow the money. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to Carrie's point, certainly we know that when we pursue court action within the context of guardianship, that typically uh, those fees related to that action, as well as attorney's fees on behalf both of the person subject to guardianship and the the person um, 
who is either uh, serving as guardian or uh, represented in that capacity, all those come out of the estate of the or the the assets owned by the person uh, subject to guardianship in those instances. And so, yeah, Carrie is correct. You know, there's a there's a there's a question about resource there. I would also I would observe that there are individuals in guardianship contexts that we also need to consider uh, who do not have those uh, resources available. And so, I would just ask that as we consider the range of challenges within guardianship, we also consider the wide range of people subject to those positions on their civil rights. Well, thank you very much. Uh, and thank you very much to everyone who called in. This has been a, a enlightening conversation. Pam Matista is Professor of Human Development and Family Science at Virginia Tech. And Marit Peterson is Associate Director of the Minnesota Elder Justice Center. This conversation was produced by NPR's Ariana Rosas. You've been listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. You can hear Chris Farrell, Brent Williams, Catherine Richard, and other guest hosts during a live call-in show at 9 a.m. weekdays throughout the month of August. Looking for Carrie Miller? She's back talking about books and ideas at 11 a.m. every Friday starting September 10th. Thanks for listening.